Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You're not crazy. That's the name of a new podcast I've been listening to, You're Not Crazy. Uh, It's pitched as gospel sanity for young pastors. It's meant as an encouragement and reminder to persevere uh, in the midst of just all this weirdness that we've been going through. Um, Honestly, I don't know that it's only for young pastors um, or only for pastors. It's really good. The hosts, Ray Ortland and Sam Albury, are both canon theologians and another diocese for the Anglican Church in North America. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that they don't mind jargon uh, in this podcast. In an earlier, one of the first episodes, they're talking about their view for what the church can be or what it should be like uh, when you go to church. And they sketch their view in a, in a, it's a positive view, but just these kind of quick niche sentences And they said, if you come to church, especially a church that is rooted in the gospel, it should feel like coming to Rivendell after being stabbed through by the witch king on Weathertop. And they say that and then just keep going. Now, what I just said is pure gibberish if you are not steeped in the Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. But... If you know that storyline and that imagery, then not much more needs to be said. It works as a little pithy thing. And, you know, this morning we are going to be in Hebrews 7. And it can be like that. Hebrews 7 can feel like insider language that flies over our heads or, or just feels incredibly other. All of this talk of Melchizedek and priests, temples, rituals, sacrifices, By the way, for those who did track the Tolkien reference, um, I actually think that the odd, mysterious figure of Melchizedek inspired Tom Bombadil. But since Dr. Bressler is here, I'm not going to go into that today. So, uh, but the figure Melchizedek, he's this um, obscure, niche, seemingly really important biblical figure. Uh, We meet him in Genesis 14. Um, We get one verse reference to him in Psalm 110, and then all of a sudden, um, he's like a a, a leading supporting actor in the book of Hebrews. He's this major figure, major character. He's used by Hebrews, um, and you know, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, right? Um, You can, some folks say, let's then just call them the author of Hebrews. Um, I actually like maybe the pastor of Hebrews or the preacher of Hebrews, Um, There's some real kind of sermon elements to this text. Um, But they use this this idea of Melchizedek, the pastor of Hebrews, as a springboard for understanding Jesus, our royal priest. God's Messiah, God's high priest combined. And I've had a blast this week kind of studying up on Melchizedek, um, reading through commentaries, uh, tracking with the Bible Project. Some of their stuff is really good on this. Um, They interviewed Dr. Amy Peeler of Wheaton College. She's a New Testament theologian. Fantastic stuff on the book of Hebrews. Um, She's a specialist. She said the only two questions anyone asks of Hebrews, who wrote it and who was Melchizedek? These two mysterious question marks that we get in Hebrews. Uh, Well, I thought, you know, it's fall break. 
It's Georgia, Florida weekend. The Braves were on till what, 2 a.m.? I don't know. I didn't watch it. Um, this would not be a Sunday of casual church going in Athens. And so I thought you might like to nerd out with me a little bit this morning and look at Melchizedek from Hebrews 7. Sound good? All right, let's do that today. Um, we're going to let the pastor of Hebrews reintroduce us to this figure, Melchizedek, tease out the significance of his priesthood, and especially reflect on Jesus, our great high priest, and our own royal priestly calling modeled after him. After all, as Peter once wrote, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, I will just say, actually, uh, Father Bill and I were talking about this before the service. Um, we actually call our presbyters in the Anglican church, colloquially priests, um, just because of some quirks in the English language, and I think some of the Elizabethan settlement, but we fully believe in and affirm the priesthood, the royal priesthood of all believers. So that's what we want to talk about a lot today as well. So first, let's reintroduce Melchizedek. These first three verses, we're kind of going to jump around in Hebrews, jump around in chapter 7. Um, and again, I actually, my... I can't prove this, but I think that the whole book of Hebrews is a sermon on Psalm 110. Um, psalm 110, this incredible royal psalm, it, it's a substructure all the way through Hebrews. Um, psalm 110 is actually the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Did you know that? Like if you were watching a football game yesterday and someone had a John 3.16 sign, in the New Testament, they would have had a Psalm 110.1 sign. That's what we see all through the New Testament. That's what they leaned on, Psalm 110. It's this incredible psalm about someone, this mysterious person who is both priest and king, and there's these tantalizing hints of their divinity and their future rule and reign. And so the New Testament picks up on this time and time again. Um, psalm 110, verse 4 as this verse, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I imagine even when that psalm was written, folks were like, what, who? Is there a footnote? Is there a study Bible? Like, this guy has not appeared very often. He's only in Genesis 14, Psalm 110.4, and then boom, all over Hebrews, all over the New Testament. Um, Hebrews has started dropping hints about this guy, but in chapter 7, that we get kind of a deep dive, this technical almost bizarre reference to someone we meet very briefly in Genesis. And so Hebrews 7 reintroduces him. Hebrews 1 through 3, who is Melchizedek? Well, he is the king of Salem. The king of Salem. Um, you know that city. That's Jerusalem. Pretty interesting that Abram, he was Abram, then he wasn't even Abraham yet, that Abram met the king of Jerusalem. And that the king of Jerusalem was somehow a priest of the Most High God. Now, if you read Genesis 1 through 13, you don't hear about a priest in Jerusalem. You don't hear about any priest of the Most High God. We have this story of creation and God walking with the patriarchs. But all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, we learn God's been doing some other things that we don't know about. And you get this figure of Melchizedek. Um, and he's king and priest. That's weird for the Old Testament. That, that's, a, that's a category confusion. Usually you had kings over here. They were descended from Judah. You had priests over here. 
they were descended from Aaron and Levi, um, and they had a good separation of church and state, <laughs> let's say. Um, in fact, oftentimes, if, if kings got out of their lane and tried to lead as priests like Saul did, it was sinful. It was viewed as exactly not what the king is supposed to do. So what's going on? Well, interestingly, um, when kings didn't stay in their lane, again, it was sinful, but there's this Melchizedek. And I would just say that when you go back, actually, to the creation story, there is this idea that Adam and Eve, indeed, humanity itself, made in the image of God, was supposed to have this combo royal priest thing going on, where we have dominion and reign and steward God's good creation. And as those made in the image of God, we mediate and image God to folks like a priest. Um, so that, that is at least, like, that's a touchstone moment that God makes humans to be royal priests. Um, and actually, if you go and read <laughs> Revelation and you look at like our future, um, life in the, in, the, in the new heavens, the new earth, uh, the Sabbath rest of eternal life in the presence of God, you see those combined for all of us. Priest and king, this royal priesthood. And so Hebrews reintroduces Melchizedek. He, he plays with his name, uh, priest of uh, of Salem, king of Salem, king of righteousness. And what had happened in, in Genesis 14 is you have all these wars between these kings, these kind of tribal chieftains. Um, I think there's nine in total. They're, they're fighting all the time in Hebrews 14, or in Genesis 14. Um, at one point, they fight, and they take Lot prisoner. And someone goes and tells Abram, hey, your, your nephew got taken prisoner. And so Abram grabs 300 men. He goes and wrecks shop, um, which is kind of cool because... Other times when we meet Abram, Abraham, he's pretty fearful, right? He's kind of cowardly. He's not known as a mighty man in that instance. But he, he comes and he, he wins this war. He, he plunders. He has these spoils. He comes back and he meets two figures. One is the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says, hey, let me give you some stuff. He's like, I don't want your stuff. He doesn't want to be beholden in any way. Um, to this person kind of representing the ways of the world. But then we get this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and he's the king of Salem, and it says that what he does, um, don't miss this, he gives Abram bread and wine, and he blesses him, and Abram gives him tithes and offerings, and that's the last we hear of him. Isn't that interesting? All the way back in Genesis 14, bread and wine, blessing and generosity. Hmm, sound familiar? From Melchizedek, this, you know, not just a human priest, but this royal priest representing this almost a, a deeper ancient knowledge of God who again appears. We don't know where he's from. That's weird because most of Genesis tells us over and over and over where people are from. You know, the Bible does that a lot, right? Like in the daily office reading this week, we were in 2 Kings. Um, we were doing morning prayer. I think Joe read it for us. And all you hear is this person, son of this person, son of this. Like that's over and over again, right? It's weird that we get someone that we don't hear that about. Um, and that's what Hebrews kind of plays with. Is, is this, it's almost an argument from silence, but it's, it's not making something up because there should be a genealogy for the king of Salem. That would be expected uh, in Genesis. And so he starts playing. Bread, wine, blessing, tithing, royal priesthood. Wait a minute. He's going to build his argument from there. 
What we have is, is really, by the time we get to Hebrews, we have these dueling priesthoods. They had the priesthood everyone knew from Aaron and Levi. And then Hebrews said, oh, what about this Melchizedek? Maybe this, this like railroad track runs into here and, and does some other things. Um, Dr. Amy Peeler actually said that we could think of this like a big math problem. And this is hard for me because I don't do math very often. But so think about a big math problem. You know those big alligator greater than signs? So that's the book of Hebrews. It's a greater than sign that Jesus is greater than almost everything, greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than Aaron. Over and over again, Jesus is better. He's greater than. Um, here they line up this equation. It says, all right, let's, let's figure this out. All right, so if Melchizedek is over here, he is greater than Abram, Right? And wait a minute, if, if Jesus is, is on this side of the equation and Aaron's on this side of the equation, then, oh, look, he's greater than him as well. That's the kind of logic going on here, right? Just like if you have a gator sign, I mean, 34 is greater than 7. See, that's, see how this works? It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, that's the argument of Hebrews. Actually, if you can fix that in your head, you know the whole book of Hebrews. That Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And so even they have this idea that, hey, maybe there was this sense in which even Levi tithed through Abram because he was on that side of the equation when things happened. And they pull this idea in verse 11. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So what about the Levitical priesthood? It's kind of saying, well, if perfection had been possible, if everything could have taken place through that priesthood, we wouldn't have this other one. And probably Psalm 110 wouldn't have picked up on it. Interesting. And so they're, they're playing with this idea, well, maybe it's Melchizedek. And by the way, the argument when we do that greater than is not that all these things are bad and all these things are good. The idea is that all these things are given by God and good and all these things are better. They're greater. Uh, the idea is that, again, those things were good and temporary. Now Jesus is better and eternal. In Hebrews 7, they're picking up this idea of the royal priesthood that that's better and eternal than the priesthood that they knew in their day that came through Aaron and through Levi. Um, it was interesting to realize that this was not um, only the, the pastor of Hebrews kind of doing this kind of work. If you read Philo or Josephus, or if you go and read um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls that came from the Qumran community, other first century documents, they're actually trying to figure out who Melchizedek is. He's a major figure of speculation. Um, and one of the reasons everyone's so interested in Melchizedek in the first century is because their priests <laughs> were corrupt. Like the priesthood in Jerusalem, um, most folks still respected the office, the lineage, but they didn't respect the men who filled the office. They were viewed as corrupt. They were viewed as out for themselves. Um, in many cases, the way you got to be high priest is you bought it. Um, it, was a, it was a bribe kind of a situation. And so they're trying to go, wait a minute, this, ah, maybe there's another priesthood we can connect to because this one is um, not good. And so you get the speculation about Melchizedek. And again, I think it's interesting that just to know that, that the author of Hebrews doesn't pull this out of thin air. This would have been a common conversation that folks would have uh, talked about and, and been thinking about. He says, no, 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 there's this Melchizedek. And again, Levi would have paid tithes through Abram to Melchizedek. Totally weird. 
Because again, verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Interesting. Bishop N.T. Wright says they were part of a whole system, which as Hebrews has already argued at length, was designed by God not to be permanent, but to point forward to what was to come. And that actually makes verse 16 very interesting, where it talks about, for on the other hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. And they go on to say there's a type of priesthood exemplified by Jesus who had become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So this priesthood they knew in Jerusalem, corrupt, sinful, selfish. And he goes, well, look at this Jesus priesthood. <laughs> uh, he didn't buy his way into it. He didn't sin his way into it. In fact, actually, he, he, he's almost commended because of his holy, righteous, indestructible life. They're setting up this contrast there. Um, the beauty and holiness of Jesus is in view. Um, and again, this is all a pretty nimble argument to just exalt Jesus as our great high priest with us connected to him as the royal priesthood of all believers. That's what Hebrews is doing. And in Hebrews 7, 23 through 24 are interesting. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's kind of interesting. It says we used to have priests come and go because they died. They succeeded one another. Um, and they weren't perfect. They couldn't, they, they were sinful themselves. Um, that's probably a little bit more like how we think of pastors, right? <laughs> uh, like we may set them apart for a role or an office, but they're going to come and go. They're going to have to offer their own confession of sin for their own sins. Um, I remember when this actually kind of was driven home for me. Some of you may remember when we first started meeting, we met at St. James United Methodist Church. Uh, we met in the afternoons. And if you go in the narthex of St. James United Methodist Church, they have a gallery of former pastors and the current pastor. All of these in, in very nice frames, these very regal-looking men. Um, well, one day I was, so we would meet there, and we would often move things into, like, storage closets and whatnot, just kind of, you know, get, get ready for things. And I opened the storage closet, and I was like, oh, there's like 12 of those frames for those pictures of the pastors. <laughs> Someone had figured out, hey, we're going to need more of these. So it was on sale. They were at Hobby Lobby. It got a good deal, man. Let's just stock up on these for the next few pastors. They're not saying anything bad about the current pastor. They're just being honest. Hey, we're going to need more of these. Because again, the former priests were many in number. They were prevented from continuing in office. Um, just a good image. I mean, connect with your pastors. Thank God for them. But like, there's 12 photos, you know, photo frames in the closet. <laughs> Keep your focus on the Lord Jesus, our great high priest. Um, that's what's happening here. His priesthood is permanent. His priesthood is eternal. That means, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
That's the point, isn't it? The salvation is found in Christ and Him alone. Access to God is through Christ and through Him alone. Hebrews goes on to remind us the beauty and glory of Jesus. We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above. He's ascended. He's in God's presence. And actually, that means we can be there too. That's what it's telling us. That's what his priesthood accomplishes. What of his sacrifice? And again, that's, that sounds weird. We don't think in terms of sacrifice a lot, right? But again, in the first century, sacrifice is just how you did religion. Um, animal sacrifice, spice, grains, whatever. Um, the striking thing, like we read the Old Testament, like, man, why are they having this barbecue? This is crazy. Um, getting rid of all these animals. Well, if you read the Old Testament and you were in that world, you're like, man, they're not killing humans. That, that's the distinction. Sacrifice is just how you did things. And so when we enter that language of sacrifice, it does sound a little weird for us. Um, Dr. Peeler was saying when she gets students who aren't from the Western world, um, some of this makes a little more sense. Um, it kind of fits their, their cultural context a little bit better. Students she had had from India and from Western Africa. So I said, well, what about the sacrifice? If it's a priest, that's what, what priests do. Well, Hebrews says he, did, he didn't make any sacrifices for his own sin, but he did make one ultimate sacrifice. His ultimate self-offering of himself out of love. And then essentially it's as if the sacrificial system was broken and finished and culminated in that one great self-offering that Jesus made. It says he made this sacrifice once for all. Didn't have to happen again. Its significance has endured forever and will endure forever. One scholar says his once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and efficacious. We have to use big words when we try to wrap our minds around the sacrifice of Jesus. His contact with the Father is immediate and unbroken. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never-ending. And therefore, the salvation which he secures to them is absolute. So what do we do with all this? Again, it's fun to nerd out a little bit. Hopefully I've piqued your interest about Melchizedek. Maybe we'll go home and read Genesis 14. Well, I think there is invitation, there's adoration, and there's a clear implication. Uh, first, the, the, really, the, the thing I get is this invitation for any and all to draw near to God through Christ our great high priest. And so we go, hey, have we drawn near to Christ for salvation? Are you regularly drawing near to God in prayer? Because you have access. Are we using that access? As Hebrews says, so often let us boldly approach the throne of grace. Second, adoration. Uh, this should lead to worship and praise. One, I think part of it just marvels at the symmetry and beauty of the scriptures. When we have this kind of a thread from Genesis 14 through Psalm 110.4 to, oh my gosh, look at who Jesus is. And what he's done for us and for our salvation, we, we worship. We marvel at the magnificent Lord Jesus. And then appropriately, like Melchizedek, we come together to share bread and wine, blessing and generosity. That's what we do as the people of God as the royal priesthood of all believers. And then finally, there is just this implication, this reminder that blessing 
and salvation runs through Jesus and through him alone. Um, we don't know as much as we would want to about Hebrews. We do know that the, these believers, um, man, it was a hard time. Um, we get the idea that they were being you know, fired and imprisoned. Um, likely physical persecution was coming. And it's likely they were trying to go like, man, why did I cast my lot with Jesus? <laughs> Um, maybe there's a temptation to draw away from Christ. Maybe there's a temptation to like, man, let, okay, that was a good adventure. We tried it. We scratched that itch. Let's go back to the temple. <laughs> um, and I think part of what Hebrews is doing is he wants to persuade them to, to remain steadfast followers of Jesus in light of any other competing temptation or tendency. Bishop N.T. Wright again says, no need to go any other route. And in fact, no other route carries any promise of success. Jesus himself is the unique human road into the very presence of God. And we trust in the eternal, fully effective priesthood of the Son of God, the Messiah. And that then is what Hebrews says is the better hope through which we draw near to God. So may we give thanks May we rejoice and realize the grace and dignity extended to us as the royal priesthood of all believers, firmly following our pioneering great high priest, the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.